0: Welcome to the Vanderbilt University Medical Center's Faculty Forum, with your host, Matt War Hoover.
1: Good morning,
2: everybody. How are you? And welcome to uh, Perfweb, whichever number it is. I don't 67? remember. Sixty-seven. Sixty-seven. That'll <laughs> be great. Um, usually, I'd, I'll do introductions more formally, but in the studio with me today is going to be Tammy Sparacino. You all know her very well from the Tammy Sparacino Journal Club. And then, of course, coming to us from Nashville is going to be Matt Warhoover and uh, Joey Lapore from uh, Vanderbilt. And going to be doing the Vanderbilt Faculty Forum with uh, Katie, right? Katie. Katie's going to be doing it. Is, is this one going to be on single ventricle? physiology is that what she's doing Matt it is it is great because I know last week I said it was some, one thing and then of course the lecture was on something completely different because we had gotten all messed up on mm. our timing or last month I should say mm-hmm. okay so let me get through the housekeeping notes want to thank our sponsors myself um, social media please <laughs> like follow share subscribe on Facebook Twitter um. Uh, LinkedIn, Uh, what's the other one, I guess. There's all kinds of them. So on social media, make sure you do that. YouTube, make sure you give us the thumbs up, follow, share, subscribe, bell icon for notifications. Our websites, perfusioneducation.com and perfweb.us. You all know what those are for. Contact us at perfusioneducation.com. You got the call-in number if you want to be live on the air. Check out our latest and greatest MediWeb app with the clinical calculator. Really good for perfusionists. Give you all the information you need to do your case uh, ECMO for hemodynamics. Uh, you've got an IV and dose cal- uh, IV drug dose calculator conversions, and there's a smaller version of the ebb of the uh, of the app which you see there. The IV calculator is just a standalone app. Okay, so. I think I've blown through everything. Is there anything else I forgot, guys? that's it. Okay. So in that case, without further ado, we're well, just going to, huh? We're having some technical issues in Nashville, right? Okay. Well, we're having technical issues. So let's go to Tammy and I, and I'll introduce Tammy again. Tammy, welcome. Welcome to the show. I know This is a journal club program. So we have the fa- faculty forum first from Vanderbilt, mm-hmm. and then we have the journal club. What is the journal club about today?
3: Today, the Journal Club is about, um, really, it's about an interesting technique for delivering cardioplasia.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah.
2: Yes, I, I read it, and I was really, I got mind-boggled watching, uh, trying to figure out the circuit. I was really having a hard time with it, but hopefully you're going to make that simplified for me. So, uh, are we <laughs> done with the technical difficulties? No, we're still trying to get up. Okay, so we're still working on technical difficulties. How's things going with COVID here in Houston?
3: We're pretty busy, wouldn't you say?
2: I think so, yes.
3: Yeah, we're on the merry-go-round. ECMO yeah. merry-go-round.
2: The ECMO merry-go-round, yes. Is Let me ask you this, because we are using an awful lot of ECMO. And as soon as you guys are ready, all you got to do is just yell at me, okay? 30 seconds more. 30 seconds more. Sounds good. Um, how, are, how are our ECMO outcomes, do you think? thus far like up to today are we seeing any I know it was really bad for a while Mm
1: -hmm.
3: it was
2: good and then bad really bad do you see it getting any better
3: I don't think we see it getting any better for us anyway but we have had some successes Um, it's just hard to really appreciate uh, the numbers when we're doing just such a great amount of ECMO Um, so many of them are not recovering (laughs) But we are seeing some successes. You know, sometimes
2: I think the public, and this is something that I've heard, I've actually gotten telephone calls from patients' families in different hospitals wanting to get transferred because they see our program here, mm. and they they think I can get them transferred to a different facility. But uh, I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding or or or. or misinterpretation of information in a vacuum vis-a-vis and what I mean by that is you have a really successful story patient survived despite all odds ECMO was was influential and part of that equation Mm -hmm. and that's all the public sees and then everyone thinks that ECMO is going to save their family member Um, well how do you align that
3: the, the problem is, they're only seeing that. You know, we m- very recently had a recovery story, a wonderful story about one of our patients that was uh, featured on national news. ABC. A- yeah, ABC. And um, it's great, it's a wonderful story, but they're not seeing that, unfortunately, that particular patient was less than 10% of all the patients that we've done to live, Mm -hmm. you know, so they're not seeing all the other things. And so although um, it's a miraculous story of of great success, they don't understand that that's the outlier that we have so many that are not doing well, that are not um, recovering. And, you know, just like you said about people calling you wanting to get their family member transferred for ECMO, I've been sitting bedside and had family members who um, heard of ECMO. They knew somebody who was a doctor or something, and they're also requesting it for their family member right there, trying mm-hmm. to just you know order up service, mm-hmm. um, not understanding that their particular family member, unfortunately, wasn't a candidate. Mm-hmm. Uh, even in the very wide range of ways, um, parameters that we're um, seeing.
2: Expanded parameters, right, I'll ex- call it.
3: Expanded parameters. Significantly expanded. Right, of uh, the people that we are seeing put on ECMO uh, during this crisis. Um, there are still even some that are being turned down. Mm-hmm.
1: So, mm-hmm. Yeah, but Absolutely. I think you're right.
3: They're only seeing a little piece of the whole puzzle.
2: Yeah, it's very, it's, uh, it's and it's very, you know, ECMO itself is not without It's um, potential uh, risks. So, are you going to do anticoagulation? Not do anticoagulation? Each one of those carries a risk. You're a risk of higher risk of infection. Mm -hmm. um, You know, secondary type infections Mm -hmm. that you can get with all of the cannulas and tubes. Um,
3: And and mm. and what about you know looking at. Uh, just really, I don't think we know what is the, the, the um, best pathway. Are you um, intubating immediately? Are you not intubating and going straight to ECMO? Are you weaning the, if you are intubated, are you going to a uh, trach collar? Um, if you're not doing that, uh, which one are you weaning first? Mm-hmm. You know, all of those different things that um, really have, although I think the techniques have been used in the past. People are trying these techniques in various ways, trying to really get some success from these patients because Mm -hmm. we're seeing so, so many deaths, so Mm -hmm. many unsuccessful ECMO runs. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Yeah, and there's a lot of people that think that lung transplant is a relatively straightforward, easy solution to this. Can you share with the audience perhaps your thoughts on lung transplants from from uh, from organ availability to the very strict criteria for being eligible for transplant yeah. to the recovery period and then the long-term survival of that
3: Well I'm in no way an expert I, I do not participate in lung transplants at any of our facilities yeah. however of course it's an area of interest for us just being uh, you know what we do and uh, especially within this last COVID crisis that we're going through, um, I think lungs are one of the least available um, organs for transplants, so therefore they have very strict criteria, mm-hmm. you know, single uh, organ failure. Um,
2: BMI under 30.
3: Yeah, be a, very, uh, uh, a very much more restricted BMI requirement, and even after a very successful lung transplant, the um, long-term uh the life expectancy after that is really not as long as you would think. Uh, isn't it somewhere between uh, like five and uh, five and ten years? Yep,
2: somewhere around there. Yeah. And your life is also very much consumed with taking medications, anti-rejection drugs, follow mm-hmm. us with visits. Now, you do have some decent quality of life. Mm-hmm. You know, Doug Seal, who's a profusionist, um, you know Doug.
3: No, I'd actually you know, I don't. He's
2: uh, with DSA Perfusion, Doug Seal and Associates in okay. uh, in Louisiana New Orleans more specifically. Oh, okay. But he goes around that regional area and stuff. And him and I have been very good friends for a very long time. And uh, he's a wonderful person, runs a business like I do. He goes, mm-hmm. He's like the Louisiana version of HET, I mm-hmm. guess, so to speak. But he had double lung transplant here at Methodist.
3: Oh, really? He sure did. Wow.
2: He did. And he went back to work, so he does have a meaningful life. Yes, you know, albeit there are challenges. Sure. But he has; he is happy, mm-hmm. and I think the other thing that I would like to address, if I can, is ECMO and it's it's um, it's a explaining maybe better to the audience who may be listening that. ECMO is not going to cure your problem, your disease.
3: Right. I think that is a, um, unless you are really familiar and within this whole, um, oh, we're ready? Oh, well, we can go back to this.
2: We can finish this thought. Go ahead. Finish your thought.
3: Well, I think that is a a very large misconception that ECMO is going to um, fix anything with the patient. It's just a means to allow the patient to heal.
2: Right, or pa- for the medications to work. Correct. Right. It's a support. whatever that
3: pathway may be, right. but it's a support. Right. Right.
2: right. Yeah. It's not a. It's not a. It's not really a treatment. Correct. It's a. It's an ability to oxygenate, ventilate the patient so that their normal physiology can be maintained, albeit the physiology is not really normal. Uh, maintained normal by ECMO because it is an artificial means, mm-hmm. and you do interact with the circuit. And of course, if the lungs are starting to sclerose and they're so grossly inflamed, you start having to worry about the right ventricle. Then you have to consider other cannulation or medications, vis-a-vis Milrinone or whatever they use nowadays.
3: Well, you know, uh, um, lots it, of factors. If you think about it, I mean, thinking that ECMO is going to uh, be the for whatever is wrong with someone's lungs is the same way of thinking if you were going to go in for heart surgery and you just put someone on the pump and the surgeon did nothing.
2: Right. Yes. Yes. Right. I've worked with some surgeons where that would have been a better option. Okay. So, Matt. (laughs) You like that? got (laughs) a chuckle. You have too, I'll bet. I'll bet you have too in your career. No problem. No comment. Exactly. He's so
3: politically correct. He's the opposite of Joe Bosch. Well,
2: that's because he's a he's at a big institution. I'm <laughs> at a private company. We we have that. I'm I'm more. I'm you have more, latitude. I'm a little more Trumpian, <laughs> and he's a little more. You're a little more. Um,
3: Don't. He,
2: well, he, no, I'm not going to say anything bad. I wouldn't <laughs> pick somebody bad, okay. like like.
3: Come someone on. Someone else. <laughs> Come on.
2: Yeah, we'll pick somebody good. You're a little more. He's a little more Pence. Pence Pinsky, he's Pinskyan. Okay. You're more like 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 Mike Pence. You're just okay. more politically savvy. Yeah. Trump was just apolitically unsavvy.
3: Hmm.
2: Yeah, and well, I think that we're really
3: going down a rabbit hole here.
2: Yeah, or you're the yeah. Omar Bradley and I'm the Patton. Okay, that'll work. Okay. Yeah, or he's the 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 Eisenhower, and I'm more the Truman. Okay. Yeah, I think that or no, Roosevelt, not Truman, first Roosevelt. Um, okay, so are we ready? Matt Warhoover? Is Katie yes, here? Sir. Or what can you tell me about what's going on at Vanderbilt through the COVID? We just opined about our situation here, and I am curious to know how not only your case volume numbers, but also how your outcomes look in terms of not necessarily we could talk about the transplants, but and I read something recently that I need to get your opinion on, but how what I'd really like to know is, what are your bridges to recovery looking like compared to your bridges to transplant? And you're talking about for
4: the COVID population,
2: correct, Joe? Yes, sir. I'm, uh, that's that's it. Now you can talk about other things too, but my, my specific yeah. question had to do with COVID because that's what we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. I
0: think we're uh, I think we're having a 65 to 70 percent survival or all patients. Um, And I think we've only transplanted probably three. Um, So um, I think we're close to uh, 60 60 patients in a cohort, 70 patients in a cohort uh, of our COVID population uh, on ECMO. Are you pretty restrictive in terms of your inclusion
2: criteria for COVID patients going on ECMO? Because we are not.
0: Yes, we are very uh, restrictive. Uh, at you know, I, I, I'm I'm not on the committee, uh, and I'm not even privy to the committee meetings. But there is a uh, daily. There's a da- once we have an, uh, an opening in the hospital, um, we've we've done a cap uh, on how many uh, outside transfers were allowed in, um, just by a capacity of not only from uh, bed bed capacity and. Uh, human capital, you know, human manpower, capacity, uh, but also physical capital. Um, we've mm-hmm. capped it, uh, and, and to be quite frank, they, every time there's an opening that at 12.30 uh, that day, there's a, a selection committee that they run the list of all the phone calls that we've gotten, and they, they, you know, they select which patient we feel is, A, need, needs the most help, and B, is within the, the range of help still.
1: If mm-hmm. That makes
0: sense. yes, yes, it, it does. Yes, we don't necessarily take the the, the the sickest patient, and we don't necessarily take the most recent phone call. What we do is, and, and we're in constant contact. I say we, uh, the people that are involved in directly, they're in constant contact with the uh, with the referring centers. physicians, mm-hmm. yeah. facilities. Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah, and so uh, I, what what I've heard in the in the, the middle Tennessee area is that. Um, the, this wave is going to peak sometime September seventh,
1: eighth
0: ish. I know two weeks ago today is uh, when we actually I think hit our another uh, I, I data behind that. We, within ten days, we had hundred and um, hundred and sixty-seven phone calls of people under the age of forty that were single um, single organ failure. Uh, that needed
3: ECMO. Wow, Matt, can I interrupt for just a second? Um, are are the people that you're seeing now um, needing ECMO? Are they the unvaccinated population?
0: 100 uh, percent are the people unvaccinated. Yes, okay. that's mm-hmm. what we're
3: seeing as well. It's just mm-hmm. you know, wondering if you were seeing something different. Um, uh, I think that's been that way for at least the last how long would you say? Few months at least. Yeah. And oh, po- these are
2: all, we have no one on ECMO that's vaccinated.
3: Right, right, we right. We don't have
2: anybody in the ICU that's vaccinated. Correct. There um, may be a few people that went to the hospital, a few, but I've got to tell you this story. God, forgive me. You were saying something. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I
3: was just going to say, and the population has just gotten so much younger.
2: Yes. Oh, absolutely.
3: Yeah.
2: They're ridiculously younger. Absolutely.
3: Yeah.
1: It's,
2: it's frightening. Um, Twenty-six-year-olds, thirty years old, thirty-year-olds, forty-year-olds, um, very young people. And that not just
3: seeing. one one twenty-something. We've no. had many twenty-somethings. Yes. Yes. So I, and,
0: and I can't speak. I can't speak for the committee, but what, what I understand, my what I what I, you know, get secondhand or thirdhand knowledge is that they're looking specifically for people under the age of forty mm-hmm. that are single organ failure um that you know have a P to F ratio you know of a certain criteria mm-hmm. and have not been on the fence, you know, for a certain criteria. So mm-hmm. and it's not they're cherry picking the you know the, the easy fruit, what they're trying to they're trying to delineate who is who is really a viable candidate uh, um, to pour resources into wow. and, and who who really needs to help uh, compared to are they just a borderline ECMO patient? We, we're not taking even borderline people. We're, we're taking people that, you know, ECMO is really their only option before death. But so on the same token, they haven't gone too far, um, you know, outside the window to where, you know, we're trying to snatch.
3: Well, I mean, um, that's exactly what the, the ELSO guidelines for once we are in these higher level peaks. You're supposed to be very selective because Mm -hmm. of limited resources, you know.
2: So, Matt, this is something that is is, uh, actually, and I had a very interesting conversation. So yesterday, I walked into a pharmacy, a pharmacy that I go to normally, and said, hey, I had the Pfizer uh, uh, vaccine. Second dose was late December, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, 64 years old plus, um, am I eligible to get the Pfizer booster, and do you have it available? Oh, absolutely. You're, you're eligible. Everybody's eligible. If you have the, the Pfizer vaccine or the Moderna vaccine, we have boosters available. So if you want the Pfizer, go ahead and have a seat, and we're going to give it to you. So I went ahead and got it. And then I said, okay, I'm also required, you know, work-wise, to get my flu vaccine. Is there any problem with me getting my flu vaccine at the same time? Nope. The CDC says there's no restriction. You can get vaccinated with both things at the same time. So left arm, I got the, um, the uh, Pfizer uh, booster. Right arm, I got the uh, flu vaccine. And then we still have some hospitals that make us do TB. So I got the TB on my right arm. So I just got shot up with everything imaginable. And uh, my left arm, is a little sore today compared to, I mean, it's, it was sore like within an hour or two of getting the injection. But I think that had to do, I don't think they needed that big of a needle. And they, I don't <laughs> think they had to push it in that hard. But they did. Whack And it was, it was in. So I think the bruising is from the injection technique more than it is necessary. But it's still kind of sore. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I had the pharmacist, um, actually it was the nurse practitioner who did the TV part of it, And uh, she was not vaccinated. She was a young woman, not vaccinated, said, I don't want to take the vaccine. And I was like trying to tell her about our experience. And she says, yeah, that's your experience. But my experience is I see thousands of people who get COVID and just recover from it. You only see the ones that don't. Mm -hmm. And so and we are so overwhelmed. So is this really um, is the is the. Is what we're seeing a reason, a, a, a limitation of our health care system, or is it a really just, a, like, how is it becoming overwhelmed? Are we seeing that we're not, that we don't have a robust enough health care system because we have been over, we're overburdened, we're overtaxed, hospitals are too full? Yeah. Be right with them, I'll be right with them.
3: Yeah, you know, that's an interesting way to think about it because I've often wondered, is it our perspective uh, that we're only seeing the sickest of the sick, um, you know, when she obviously would see lots of people who come in uh, being working in a pharmacy uh, who were ill with COVID and likely get better. But there's no mistaking that we don't have enough rooms and that we actually are housing sick patients, um, you know, in hallways in, in a major city that has lots of hospitals um, available. So I don't know where the disconnect is there.
2: I've got some other interesting data too, but we have a phone caller. We have somebody that's calling in. Go ahead, you're live on the air. Hey guys,
4: this is John Ingram. Can you hear me okay?
2: Hey John, yeah, we can hear you. How are you?
4: Hey hey Matt, hey Tammy, good to see you guys. Um, While you were talking about the vaccinated or unvaccinated. we now have vaccinated people that, uh, that are first going on. We do have one now, 41 year old uh, medical professional who got vaccinated, you know, fairly soon when it, when it was available and um, is on ECMO. That's the first one that we've seen. Oh, wow. And, um, and we also have some vaccinated uh, number in the hospital, you know, on ventilator and so on. Mm-hmm. And as far as the youth and the young age coming through, it's unbelievable the 20-year-olds now that, that were pretty much um, getting referred. I think, Matt, you were saying a minute ago when I just started tuning in that you're turning down a whole ton of references that people want to send you, potential ECMO patients. We're turning them down sometimes every couple hours. Mm-hmm. Outside-line hospitals that don't have ECMO uh, are, are feeder hospitals that are trying to call us. I know in one weekend we turned down 15 referrals. A couple weekends ago that we couldn't take, and mm-hmm. as far as the shortage goes, there's there's a lot more of a staff shortage than a room shortage. But the rooms are being taken up too. Don't get me wrong, but but the the, the rubber hits the road a lot harder when you start talking about nursing, respiratory, and all the support staff. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, we That's are. The, well, go ahead, Matt. I agree 100 percent, John. That uh, really, you know. The, the limiting factor that we have here at Vandy it is is the human uh, capital. Uh, we just don't have we don't have the nurses and the support staff to do it.
2: hmm hmm mm-hmm. So is it overburdened? So why is our healthcare system, if we have that enough beds, which in some of our institutions we don't? Yeah. We are. We are. In fact, even even you, Vanderbilt. I know you built an entire garage out into a COVID unit. Um, so you have had expansion of the facilities themselves, but us too, we are having, you know, nurses are tripled, sometimes quadrupled, which is really difficult to do for them. Um, and they're being, I mean, really they don't have a choice, but to do it. I mean, they could quit, but that would be, that would be a a disservice to their, to their profession. They can't just quit. Um, but a lot of them did go to go traveling and things Mm -hmm. like that because it, it could make a lot more money so you are seeing shifting resources all around but still taking care of four very sick patients even though they're trying to give them you know only one or two that are really sick and then how much attention are those patients getting when they have other patients to take care of and the other thing that has bothered me a little bit is and i've asked this question of people how many non covid patients have died from a different disease that was treatable, because there was no place to put them in the hospital or get them in the hospital, because it was overrun with COVID patients. In other words, so for how for how many how many non-COVID patients died from other diseases to save one COVID patient? That's that's my question.
3: Hmm. You know, coming back real quick to something that you said about nurses. Uh, you know, and other support staff as well, being um, you know tripled and, and sometimes quadrupled, and you know how much care are they giving? I, I think that as uh,
2: and this is critical care ICU yes. three or four. I'm not talking about the floor right. where it's one to twenty.
3: Right. Cause I'm talking about we're the not there anyway. Critical we would, care unit. We wouldn't even be witnessing that, but we're right. witnessing this in all of our hospitals really, um, and I think that it's falling to us. We're having to do a lot more caregiving to these patients to help assist these nurses.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And we are. We have, I tell you what, I've said this a billion times. My job compared to nursing is easy. Mm-hmm. They have a hard job. I have so much respect for the nursing community, especially in, in particular, of course, what I'm exposed mostly to, the critical care mm-hmm. nursing and the, uh, the operating room in this uh, through this disaster it has really really raised them up in my uh, in my hierarchy of, of you know being uh, incredible people incredible incredibly dedicated professionals and so invested in their in their patients i'm i'm prou- i am proud to work around these people mm-hmm. i'm humbled by it
3: um, a real quick question for matt and john are you seeing any limitations with your um, ECMO uh, devices? You're, you're, you know, have a certain mm. amount of machines, and, and that's the amount of patience you can have. Are you maxing out in, in that capacity?
4: Well, I, I well think uh, I'll address that uh, first if you don't mind. We, uh, we must have the luxury of being a top priority for okay because we're able to actually buy a few more cardio helps. But we have gone ahead and bought three of just about everything. We have three breeze, We have have four sparks. um, We have um, you know, we don't have any of the, uh, I think we should put it at the ENTP or something by um, by Taruma. We don't have those yet. But um, but we, we, we seem to be a priority where we can get equipment when we ask for it. Otherwise, I know a lot of hospitals, they, they ask for equipment, and many you know, companies just say, we don't, we don't have it,
1: mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and
4: mm-hmm. Uh, we, we do without it. So um, I guess just because of our volume, we've been sort of as a uh, priority. But I have a question for you guys on the staffing, and I, I always wonder, almost wonder, like, where is all the staff? Like, I've heard that people have dropped out of healthcare, and I don't know of anybody.
3: What'd he say? Yeah, so he, he knows people that have dropped out of healthcare. Have do,
4: you, do you think that's true? Because I, I was wondering if that's really true. Well,
2: well, let's do this. Hey, so well, let's real so quick. I, want, I just
3: want to hear Matt's response to mine, and then I want to come back to that's John's. Right, yes. Yes. Matt, so, what are you limited by your ECMO machines?
0: Well, I, I can say we were. Um, we were. You know, nothing moves very quickly. Uh, you know, in any large institution. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, I'm not going to say it wasn't in the works already, but it definitely expedited it. Mm-hmm. We were uh, fortunate enough to, we, we purchased uh, seven new oh. uh, Spectrum uh, pumps mm-hmm. on PEM Day of, uh, of last week. Wow. Oh, wow! Well, it, it, you know, it was an ongoing, it's been ongoing for sure. months. But we they actually landed and uh, got them through Biomed on Sunday night, got them in on Friday uh, late. I met on uh, Sunday night, and on Monday of the seven, uh, we had we used two of them that day. Wow. And wow. you know, we're up to four. And so you increase capacity in your capital equipment, but you're still, you know, our limiting factor is is, is the support staff and the nursing right. staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to, you know, to segue into what John was talking about, we have seen – we have seen uh, – Transition out of traditional healthcare roles into, you know, maybe you know, uh, uh, a consultant or uh, industry, some Mm -hmm. you know, other peripheral roles that, you know, the the circles you know, overlap in some places. But you're primary healthcare, you know, you're primary healthcare uh, provider. Now you're somewhere in the support staff of of whether it be industry, sales. you know, any of that we've seen. We've seen a vast amount of nurses just, frankly, get burnt out, yeah. and, and, out and, you know, that. I, I see it. I see it daily. The burnout that they have. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's it, it's unfortunate, and you know, we've got some patients that you know, whether it had the ICU delirium or just a little bit, you know, combative. Whatever the reason is, is and you have to understand they're in the COVID. Positive room, so they're gown gloved, you know, all that all day long on these ECMO patients just to keep them from pulling their cannulas out.
1: Mm-hmm. It's
0: yeah. imagine 12-hour shifts in those, you know, in those suits. It's just, it, it's really, it's really mentally uh, and physically, you know, exhausting on these people. And so, you know, we have been uh, as as perfusionists running at a, at a thirty thousand foot view, you know, monitoring everybody across the board. We have gotten more involved in direct patient care, even to just staying in a room for fifteen or twenty minutes. Right. Really monitoring the patient so they don't pull a cannula out. Mm-hmm. So the nurse can get out of there, walk away, get a cup of coffee, get something yeah. to drink, kinda, uh, you, know, you know, decompress. You use mm-hmm. the bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. You know,
2: I mean something. That you basic know yeah. Yes. Exactly. I mean I mean I agree with you. Burnout is 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 huge. I'm getting burned out and you know, I, you know, this is, I'm in the twilight of my career. And I've said this to several people. I'm not about to abandon ship while it's sinking. And I'm not about to leave the battlefield in the middle of the battle.
3: Gosh, I, but I hope we're not sinking. Maybe we're just taking on a little water.
2: A little, <laughs> um, but I, um, but when this is over, and we have, you know, gotten through this, and we're sort of back to what is considered normal without these surges and, and so forth, um, I don't know that I want to stay. I don't, I don't know that I can keep doing this. This is really, this has affected me.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And, uh, you know, I don't know that I want to stay in uh, clinical, clinical medicine right. um, after we get through this. But I would never, at this point in time, you know, it's just not in me. But I can respect people who just through sheer, I mean, I think they have PTSD. I think that they have been so traumatized and affected by this that when they, they, just, they just say, I can't do this anymore, I've got to quit, and they quit. And that is horrible for us because you lose one trained, qualified, capable health care professional in your institution at this moment, the impact is tremendous it's not just okay well you know jimmy jimmy john decided to go take a job someplace else you know mm-hmm. no worries okay good luck bye and then they're just easily replaced and uh, yeah. everything just runs along just fine it's profound when somebody decides to leave a unit of any sort in this moment that we're in because we're at such capacity
3: mm-hmm.
2: or exceed
0: we're exceeding capacity we really are and i also comment you know, I, I think a lot of it, uh, the burnout, also has to do with, I think there's some underlying frustration, because there's there's a lot of, you know, what, what you pointed out, Joe, is that there's people in different stages of their career, but, you know, you've got people in their late 20s, early 30s, that typically, you know, would be taking care of people, you know, in their, you know, late 40s, sometimes, 50s, you know, sometimes, but more, more, closely, you know, they're taking care of people in their 60s and 70s most of the time in these ICUs. Um, yeah. That's yeah. what they're used to care of. And then you flip the script on them, and, and they're taking care of people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, and they're constantly, uh, you know, in such a bad, uh, acute state of health and it's just, I think it's demoralizing that, you know, they go, this is not what I signed up for watching young people die. In addition, the the, the length of care that is going on with these, um, mm-hmm. you know, just, you know, we, we had one, one patient on 128 days on ECMO. We've had another one 119 days on ECMO. The, the, the continuum of care that goes across, we're talking months uh, of, of direct care,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and that 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 just wears on people. Although, you know, it's it's nice to know the patient and you get to know the family, it's just I think it's I think it's morally and especially when they leave and you go, What did we just do? And and then you get to reflect on it and go, you know, Mrs. So and so or Mr So and so then we we got him out of the hospital and if they think about it they go, we just got him out of our hospital. That you know, it's a long term, you know, rehab, right. long term vent floor. That that's just they just made over one obstacle. And then at the time to reflect on it, really, uh, when people walk away, they go, you know, get out of there, they go, what are we really doing? And I think that's the that's what really drives people out of the industry.
3: Well, and I think, too, um, especially for younger professionals coming into this, I mean, we have some new perfusionists that are recently graduated and joined us. And, you know, this isn't probably what they thought they were going to be getting into, you know, for such a long period of time. This isn't just a... A, a little bump in the road. I mean, we're, we're, we're climbing a mountain right now um, trying to just get over the top. And I'm sure it's the same in other professions. So what's that going to do to the longevity of someone's career? Is this going to give them burnout early? Are they going to change their mind about what it is that they are wanting to do because of this? Mm-hmm. You
2: know? No, I totally understand. So we have a question from uh, YouTube from Jack, uh, Jacqueline Lamb. Um, And it says, if you don't mind sharing, what is your ECMO capacity? Now, John uh, answered, he is at 25, so, but they have a COVID unit in one hospital or an ECMO. And I think they have two different units or three different units where they can house these patients, but it's in one facility. Matt, I know you're coming from a single facility Uh, But you may have also different units where you have these ECMO patients. I'm not sure if this question, and I'm assuming it is, it's COVID ECMO capacity is actually the question. So do you have a, John says 25. What is Vanderbilt doing in terms of your capacity and how would you adjust that if you needed to?
1: Well,
0: um, so we, we do ECMO on three different units, uh, four different units now because we've made a, a, a complete COVID unit. Uh, current capacity as uh, far as machines we have, we could do we could do twenty two machines in one facility, uh, but with the appropriate backups, mm-hmm. um, that's our max. Um, we have put a, and that's that's all all ECMO. That's lung transplant, heart transplant. Post-cardiomy but from a COVID standpoint, what we have done is we have put a limit on outside transfers uh, to six, knowing that our internal volume of COVID patients, patients that come in through our own ER, or uh, you know patients that are uh, already in the hospital here, that may you know you know I want to say not progress because progress would be you know regress into needing um, echo. Uh, from a health standpoint, we you know, we want to make sure that we, we're taking care of, um, you know, the, the the hub that we are. And so, you know, our outside transfers from east and west Tennessee, from, uh, you know, from southern and western Kentucky, southern Illinois, uh, northern Alabama, northern Mississippi, Georgia, those areas, we also want to support them. But we have to make sure that we're taking care of our, our, our demographic here locally mm-hmm. as well.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Now, well, I have a, a follow-up I question guess. to that. Do you reserve anything for um, non-COVID patients? Like, are, are you saving any ECMO machines to use in uh, other ways? Or you just, whatever patient presents that needs ECMO, um, as long as it's within your capacity, it, uh, you just go ahead and, and utilize?
0: With the, with the injection of these new uh, spectrum pumps, what we've, what we've now done is we've got uh, six uh, uh, Centromag machines mm-hmm. which of course you know require the you, you know they don't have a backup the hand crank you have yeah. to you know have just to do a, uh, backup. backup we have
1: machine.
0: six yeah heads um, that are dedicated strictly to our uh, thoracic okay. and cardiac patients yeah and so now that we've got this injection we are no longer to get it those are going to put on, be put on reserve for only our um, our solid organ transplant yeah.
1: uh, mm-hmm. yeah. patients. Yeah.
0: and so we have put a buffer in for those. And I I, w- I would assume that those the postcardiotomy patients from our cardiac surgery volume that you know those would fall in line. Like that so, you know, that being said, we have probably 16 um, a capacity of 16 or uh, to to go for COVID. More
3: yeah.
1: Specific. Okay. Sixteen mm-hmm. for
3: COVID. That that's what I was wondering because mm-hmm. we. We initially were doing something like that. You know, We were saving a machine for non-COVID, but that doesn't seem to be happening anymore. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, what I think is very interesting, and I'm, I'm very proud of actually, in our practice, and we practice in multiple hospitals. Um,
3: Community hospitals, but some they busy are commu- ones.
2: Right, they are community-based hospitals. And we, we have nine, we are managing nine patients currently in three different institutions, which is very challenging for us as an organization. We are actually stretched to beyond our limit. And again, you just can't, we just recently hired even more people. We do have some people that are leaving, um, some people that are going into retirement. They've had enough of this and they're just going to retire. Um, And I can't blame them. I mean, they they have every right in the world to do that uh, at this stage of their career. But we are in a a disaster. From a technology perspective, I don't think that's our limitation. I think technology is, is like Matt said earlier, it's really the the personnel, the professional level resources to run these things safely and be able to manage them. But we've also experienced, I don't know if anybody else is having this, um, some concerns about oxygenators because there's only one manufacturer mm-hmm. of the polymethylpentene technology, the plasma-type membrane like the EOS or the Quadrox or the, uh, uh, the MC3, nautilus. the yeah. Nautilus, and things like that. So if that becomes an issue, and the other thing I think, we in community-based settings... There's, there's I, and I don't think the public understands this, that ECMO is not ubiquitous. Not every, there's probably fewer hospitals providing ECMO, and I think this has got to be a huge difference, far fewer that provide ECMO, even if they do heart surgery, than do not provide it. So most community hospitals that are doing heart surgery don't really offer ECMO as an option. And, you know, and then you have some companies who are trying to take advantage of this issue going on, and they're going out and just selling them these these devices. Oh, you could use this, and just the nurse at the bedside can run it. You just have to put it in. You don't even need a perfusionist to take care of this machine. And I am a big believer in the blended program, ECMO Specialist. Um, and perfusionist blended program running these things. In fact, you have to have a full team. But when you put somebody on ECMO, it isn't just all. It's, it's the, That's where the that's where the complications start to happen. It's not. It gets better. Yes, the oxygenation and the CO two removal, the ventilation and the oxygenation. But the problems associated with ECMO. The ECMO baggage. The, yes, a lot of it. And if you don't know how to manage that. Anticoagulation, what type of anticoagulation, no anticoagulation. Well, it's
3: not even from um, the... Bleeding the,
2: complications, infection. Yeah,
3: it's not just the circuit. You know, it's it's the whole... It's, so it's not even the nurse who maybe isn't trained, let's say, right. um, uh, just kind of gets thrown into it. It's the whole team. If your ICU doesn't manage, you know, ECMO, mm-hmm. your ICU doesn't have any practice managing ECMO.
2: Correct. Right. That's yep. right. So... Two of our hospitals in the community are capped at four. So they can, although we have had five in both, even though four is currently all we can do, we've had five at two institutions because now there's more of it over here and those machines are no longer available. And we're not, we're a private practice. You can't just, I can't go out and buy four spectrum pumps. I don't have that kind of money to start with and even if they did we don't know how to run it because we don't this is what we use now we can maybe um, we have a patient who we were able to get um, a pump from the medical center uh, that they had in storage because we really needed it for this patient because we were already maxed
3: out at our machines we were
2: maxed out and we needed another machine and they brought it and uh, look it took a it took a phd to turn this machine on it took me 35 minutes just to get it to run
3: it's a little bit older
2: it is much <laughs> much much older but it is a platform that mm-hmm. did work yeah and uh unfortunately the patient didn't survive but um, we're
3: using it on a new patient
2: now we are using it on a new patient now that is correct so those we're are on the, the kinds merry-go-round of, right we are and uh, so to answer the 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 question uh, uh answer jacqueline's question for our area where we practice, I would say 9 or 10 is about the most we can do. Mm-hmm. John is at 25, and Matt is at, uh, and what was the 12. number you gave us? 12 it? or 14? 12 to 14.
3: Right. Yeah,
2: it's. it's not unlimited. No. Right. It's right. not. Right. right. Very good. Okay. And uh, let's oh. see, do we have Katie here? Yep. We're, we're, Katie's Katie's here. Okay. Katie's here. Hi, Katie.
3: Welcome,
2: Katie. Matt, will you introduce she, Katie to everybody? Absolutely. Give us about another
0: minute. Oh, She's okay. figured out, and, and, and we're ready for her presentation. I'm sure uh, David's got that all loaded up. Well,
2: okay. this has been a really good conversation, It I is.
3: Think. Well, and I'll just do one follow-up comment since we have a minute. Um, this actually just happened to us uh, in our, our practice You know, there was one ECMO machine available at one of our facilities uh, because someone had been transferred and so we had freed up a machine and of course we had a lot of people that were on ECMO watch, but none of them great candidates, but there was one in particular that was declining and so they were considering using that machine and um, they didn't. They decided to sort of wait it out, see if they could medically manage, prone some more, et cetera. And the very next day, we needed that machine for post-cardiotomy. Um, yes, I remember. And we wouldn't have had a machine mm-hmm. if they had chosen a patient that wasn't a good candidate anyway. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. a real lesson there.
2: Yes, I think so, too. Yes, there are limitations. And now that
3: post-cardiotomy patient, of course, had a short ECMO run is off. and And did well. And did well.
2: But we could have left them on the heart lung machine. Obviously, we could. True. There's a lot of things you can do. It's just very suboptimal because sure. rolling a heart lung machine into the ICU, Which we did, is just a challenge on was its that, own.
3: Was that surge two?
2: Yes, surge two, and uh, and then of course the space it takes up, uh, the difficulty getting around it and moving in the well, room. Well, and you know, also what it does to big.
3: your um, your cardiac surgery program. Right.
2: Exactly. Well, I think, and that's, uh, I'll I'll finish this off with my fundamental question, and that is how many patients died from delayed care because the hospitals were so overwhelmed they couldn't get in the hospital, they couldn't get seen for whatever the reason is. They couldn't get surgery, kept getting put off. Whatever the reason is, how many patients or people died for every one COVID patient we've saved. And if, if that, in, I mean, I think that will be teased out of the data somehow, somewhere. Mm-hmm. But I think that's going to be something. And I, my, my guess, my suspicion is, it's going to be a higher number. It's not going to be a one for one, or it's not going to be 0.5. I think it's going to be several for one. Well, and uh, so, so we've lost several patients for each COVID patient that we saved. And I don't know if this sounds unsympathetic, and maybe it sounds a little harsh, but I think at some point in time, if you refuse to be vaccinated um, and you get sick, now if you're vaccinated and you still get it, I think you do everything you can. But if you're unvaccinated and you get it, you had the tr- the, the, you made the decision to not be vaccinated. A personal I, decision, I, not a, personal, med- not a yes, medical decision. Yes, not for a medical, right, because you thought they were going to track you Uh, And I will tell you, as soon as I got that shot by arm yesterday, that booster, I was hearing a phone ring. And I'm telling you, it's been ringing ever since. Um, But if you think that these vaccines are dangerous or they're not going to work or whatever the case may be, and you don't want to take it because you don't know what's in it, you don't know what's in the stuff we're doing to you when you get to the hospital. Yeah. And so I think that at some point in time, we have to say, if you've decided to not be vaccinated, there's only so much we can do to help you. We'll do the... We'll do what we can, but ex- but advancing their care to um, full ECMO and the whole thing to try and really, for us, very low survival numbers, I don't think necessarily makes sense. That's my opinion.
3: Hmm.
2: What do you think? And can you guys sit a little closer?
3: Well, I I, I don't think we Are can we, refuse care, they, but I think there can be a limitation on how many so it doesn't overrun uh, the hospital systems uh, and health care for all the other patients. I think that that... that it's just does... not
2: fair to other patients who got vaccinated that have... Now, I understand, you know, if you're obese and you have coronary disease, you smoked and you have coronary disease. I know that's a slippery slope, mm-hmm. and I realize that you can take that down a lot of rabbit holes, but there are a lot of patients who have idiopathic aortic stenosis that should have as much opportunity to get their TAVR, but it's canceled, 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 canceled. And then you lose those patients, but you don't know if you've lost them to a bad outcome or they went someplace else, and you really don't know unless you know somebody's following that. And so I think that's information that we're going to have to tease out of the, the data well, mine uh, at some point in time. We're all
3: here to take care of patients and to save lives. It's just so frustrating to see um, our capacity not be what it needs to be for the current situation.
2: Yes, but that's a big, bigger, big, huge problem. Mm-hmm. So Matt, you were gonna say something. I'm sorry, Katie, good morning. It's Hi, so Katie. nice to see you again.
0: Yeah, I, I'm, uh, Katie's back uh, You know, with, with, uh, with us again from last month. Uh, she's one of the pediatric perfusionists over at the, the Monroe Care Children's Hospital associated with Vanderbilt. Um, she's been with us for three or four years now and uh, originally uh, did her work at MUSC, and we're very uh, happy to have her on this uh, campus. And uh, unfortunately, Joe, I'm gonna have to, because it is a little tight in this window here, I thought, you know, uh, I could tell you, I could push myself away from the table a little bit more, but I'm gonna let Katie take over. I have to go, we are uh, maxed out at capacity this morning with a, a COVID patient, and I actually have to go, go do something here with one of them, take them to IR, no worries. No, no worries. Let, let Katie do her thing. And uh, I'll, I, I may or may not be back. But uh, Joe is always good to see you. Tammy, thanks for having Great me. To see good you. Me. to see you too.
2: And glad I'm you're looking healthy. I know you went through some of your own <laughs> issues. Be safe and we'll talk to you, Matt. Bye. Katie, all right. Katie, the floor is okay. yours.
5: Okay. All right. So I'm going to talk today about single ventricle physiology. Um, and Real quick, um, I'm gonna do just a little brief review of the the steps of kind of a traditional single ventricle repair. Um, And then I'm gonna tell you what I really wanna talk about, which isn't just those traditional steps. So next slide, please. All right, so I think we all probably remember at least learning about single ventricle physiology, um, typical hypoplastic left heart patient um, and the three stages of their repair, which is going to be the Norwood, the Glen, and the Fontan. So if you don't remember, um, basically these steps are to end up with a goal of having your systemic ventricle, um, your right or left, whichever that ventricle is, pumped to the body and then having passive blood flow to the lungs. Um, that's, the, that's the goal of our single ventricle um, staging. And depending on the exact anatomy, these steps might look a little bit different and the timing might be a little bit different. Next slide, please. But what I really want to talk about is not just those steps. I kind of want to talk about who gets a single ventricle repair and why. So we all, we all know that the hypoplastic left heart is our, our typical single ventricle, but there are many other complex anatomies that might be a candidate for a single ventricle repair. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk a little bit about the history of single ventricle palliation, some of the techniques, the complications, morbidity, and mortality, um, what happens with a quote-unquote failing Fontan, and what some future treatments might be. So if you're an adult perfusionist, you might be thinking, why do I care about this? Um, but I think that as more and more of these patients Um, survive longer into adulthood, that even you adult profusionists are going to be seeing these patients. You might be seeing these scaling fontans. You might be seeing transplants for these patients. So I think it's great for everyone to kind of have an understanding of this physiology. Next slide, please. So the first thing I want to talk about is some of the things that go into the decision of who's going to get a single ventricle repair versus a biventricular repair. So these are gonna be some of our patients that have complex anatomy, um, but they still might have two ventricles. So what are some of the things to help the surgeons or the cardiologists decide if they should get a single ventricle repair? So we have to think about the long-term outcome of the Fontan procedure overall and the specific suitability of that patient for a Fontan. Um, and then the long-term outcome if they were to undergo that complex biventricular repair. Um, that might involve multiple procedures. They might not really have a great quality of life. They might be in the hospital more than they're out of the hospital. There's medical expenses, et cetera. Um, and so we have to think about that specific patient, whether they are suitable for a biventricular repair or a single ventricle repair. So remember, again, single ventricle isn't just for hypoplastic left heart, um, and it also isn't necessarily for every hypoplastic left heart. Um, so really, we're, we're going to talk mostly about the single ventricle or the biventricular repair, but the other choice, of course, is heart transplantation. So we'll talk a little bit more about that choice um, later on. Next slide. So some of the patients who might be a good candidate for a single ventricle are patients with an inadequate ventricle size, so that would be our hypoplast or Schoen syndrome, patients who have an inadequate atrioventricular valve, so for example if it's a pa IVs patient, congenitally corrected transposition, um, depending on some specific factors for them, how their left ventricle looks, um, how old they are. If they're older age, when they present for this repair, there's a higher probability of left ventricular failure and operative mortality, so they might be actually better off with a single ventricle repair. Um, Some other kind of contraindications to pursuing the full biventricular repair, um, specifically for congenitally corrected transposition include dextrocardia, anomalous coronaries, or inlet VSD versus a codaventricular VSD. So lots of factors for somebody to think about when they're deciding which pathways patients should be going down. Some other uh, patients who might be better off with a single ventricle patients with an unbalanced AV canal. So remember, if, um, depending on your, your program and your cardiologist and your surgeon, they probably have numbers if the, if the canal is greater than 70, 30, which, which side it's um, committed to, they might decide that that's too unbalanced to pursue the full five ventricular repair. If you've got a double outlet right ventricle with a non-committed BSD. Um, and so some of these surgeries, it's not that they couldn't be completed with a bio repair, but they might, for example, the one I just talked about would have a long uh, intracardiac baffle and would be complicated for reoperations. Heterotoxic patients with complex ventricular relationships and positioning, again, if those intracardiac baffles are going to be really complex, um, whether or not you're actually going to be achieve, able to achieve what you want to achieve. So next I kinda wanna talk a little bit just about the timeline of single ventricle palliation. So the history of this repair. So interestingly, I found out when I was doing this research for this presentation, the Fontan procedure was actually introduced to treat tricuspid atresia, not hypoplastic left heart. I didn't know that. Um, So that procedure was created in the 60s and then in the 80s came about the lateral tunnel fontan, and also the introduction of the bidirectional glenn, so taking it from a one repair to a more of a staged repair. And then in the 90s came about the extra cardiac fontan and also the fontan fenestration. Um, and that's also when some interest came up in pursuing these complex biventricular repairs. And that interest really came about because of um, There were some poor outcomes following Fontan. Some of them had to do with poor preparation of the patients before the Fontan. It kind of was uncertain of how to best medically um, prepare them for the surgeries. Um, If they had elevated pulmonary pressures and protein-losing, enteropathy, cirrhosis, all of these things kind of were complicating Fontan repairs. Um, In the 2000s, and really up until now, there's really The extracardiac Fontan and the lateral tunnel Fontan are both being used. Um, And then there's more um, refined management of single ventricle patients. And then at the end, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the future ideas out there that might be used to manage these patients. So, I'm going to go through this a little bit. This is kind of showing the evolution of the Fontan procedure and how this repair has been done. So, if you see the first image, that's a atrial pulmonary fontan, um, you can see it involves a direct connection between the right atrium and the pulmonary artery, and so the idea behind this was that the, hyper- the um, hypertrophied right atrium could act as a pump, so you would be having some pump power to the lungs and not just all passive circulation. Um, but really, this, this idea kind of morphed into the lateral tunnel fontan. But it did have some poor results due to lots of arrhythmias, you know, involved in that atrium. Um, and the flow dynamics really were not ideal. So it kind of evolved into the idea of this lateral tunnel fontan, um, which includes I think there's another better photo on the next slide. So let's let's go to the next slide. So you can see that that second photo, that's your lateral tunnel, which includes a baffle inside of the atrium, so it kind of allows your Fontan circulation to go through the atrium. Um, and then on the, the far right, you've got the extracardiac, which is a conduit around the outside of the heart. So those are kind of our, our choices for technique, the Fontan. And then on this slide, I wanted to show the Fontan fenestration. So some centers will use a fenestration, which is basically just a pop-off between your Fontan conduit and the heart. Um, There are pros and cons of this and we'll go to the next slide, we'll talk about this a little more. So the benefits, you have a lower central venous pressure, again, because you have that that fenestration as kind of a pop-off. It also can give you better preload for your single ventricle because you've got some flow coming directly across there from the Fontan circulation. It can be more important in the immediate post-op period when your patient will still have some depressed myocardial function and higher pulmonary pressures. Um, And it's also been used in failing Fontan patients to improve their physiology to give them that fenestration um, later on. For challenges, it is a persistent right-to-left shunt, so you're going to have a lower saturation with that fenestration open than you would if you didn't have it, um, which could lead to some cyanosis. In some patients, closure of that uh, fenestration helps them. It gives them improved exercise tolerance, better growth, and reduced need for cardiac meds. So there's not really a clear answer on if a Fontan fenestration will help your patient or not. There's pros and cons to both. Um, But everyone agrees that if it closes uh, unplanned, closes shortly after surgery, then that's not good, and those patients usually do not do well. So which type of Fontan is best? As I said right now, pretty much the, the ones that are in use are the lateral tunnel and the extracardiac. And so some of the advantages for the lateral tunnel, um, it can be performed in a smaller and younger patient. It has some growth potential, um, and it but it does require aortic cross clipping So if your patient has some other complex um, anatomy that you also need to address some intracardiac work at the time of surgery, you may be cross-clamping Already, anyway, um, extracardiac Fontan is going to reduce the need avoid that prosthetic material in the right atrium, which will lead to lower arrhythmia and pacemaker rates. It may or may not require aortic cross clamping, um, but it does have a lack of growth potential, so it could require a reoperation. So, right now, in the last decade, approximately 12% of Fontan procedures are lateral tunnel, and approximately 88% are. Extra cardiac. So, most uh, programs are preferring to do the extra cardiac fontan. So, of course, I had to throw this in here. Um, I think you guys know that I came from Boston Children's Hospital, so I'm a little biased um, when it comes to them. But Boston Children's is one of the centers that does continue to prefer the lateral tunnel fontan, and they published this paper recently in 2020 talking about their uh, improved outcomes with the lateral tunnel compared to the extra um, Some of the things that they showed were they had lower early and midterm mortality, better results in exercise stress testing for the lateral tunnel, despite the fact that they had longer operation times and more frequent concomitant procedures and less favorable preoperative characteristics. So even though they had less favorable kind of patients that they were giving the lateral tunnel, they still had better outcomes and longer freedom from Fontan failure. Their extra cardiac group really had a higher rate of that premature fontan fenestration closure, which I said, everyone agrees, but that is not good for any patient. Um, But really what I think this shows is that um, like any other surgical repair, what your team is good at and what your ICU is good at managing makes a big difference. So if your team is really good at lateral tunnel and that's something that you have kind of honed in on and perfected the the care of those patients, then you're going to have great outcomes for that. If your team is better at extra cardiac Fontans, then you'll probably have better outcomes for that. Um, and ICU management is really important. So we're going to talk a little bit about some of the mobility and mortality associated with these single ventricle patients. Um, basically, when we talk about mobility and mortality, we can talk about either the failing Fontan. End of the spectrum, or the interstage mortality, which is the mortality that can happen um, when your patient is between stage repairs and doesn't make it to the front hand. So to do that, I found this great paper out of CHOP, um, and they kind of talked about, they were talking about mortality after the neurobiotic procedure, so that, that's after that first surgery. And what they did, which was interesting, is they broke all of their data into these different eras um, or time periods, and they kind of based it on developments in how they treated the Norwood procedure. So their first era um, is when they began the use of the superior favel pulmonary um, conduit, which, which is the bidirectional gland more commonly. So when they started using bidirectional blend and further staging the operation. Um, and then in the mid-90s to early 2000s, they had a big change in their surgical team, so that kind of changed their, their outcomes for a little while. And then in 2002, they began to use the SANO versus the instead of the BT shunt. Um, and then in 2011, they began this interstage monitoring program, um, which helped them monitor their patients, even if their patients were at home um, after they had the Norwood before they were coming for their cleanse. And they also decreased the time that they had between the Norwood and the cleanse, so they kind of tightened up that little interval right there. So, for them, across all of these eras, their average mortality for these patients was 10.8%. Um, that's across all of them, but then in their most recent era, they've actually got their interstage mortality down to 4.6%. So they've, they've really kind of honed in on the timing of their operations and also this interesting um, interstage monitoring program, which is kind of still to be seen, I think, how much that will help them in the future. but they've, in, uh, improve their management to get their mortality down to 4.6%, which is great. Um, so, then we'll talk a little bit about the morbidity and mortality after the Fontan. So, this is what you would usually hear about um, as far as morbidity and mortality for these patients. So, to do that, I um, found this great paper at Children's Hospital of Wisconsin talking about Fontan palliation and modern error and some of the factors that impact morbidity and mortality. So on, according to this paper, the, the overall operative survival for a procedures procedure is 98%, which is great, um, but there is 16% morbidity. So some of those morbidities include heart failure, arrhythmias, protein losing enteropathy, stroke, and thrombus. So the, the factors that impacted whether or not your patient had any of these morbidity events. Um, in this particular study were length of stay, cross clamp time, and the presence of the fenestration. Interestingly, whether or not your patient had a left ventricular or a right ventricular morphology did not affect the event-free survival. So whether they were a single left or a single right ventricle didn't make a difference. Long-term freedom from transplant is quoted anywhere from 50 to 70 percent. And the 15-year Fontan failure rate is approaching 20 percent. So again, if you're an adult perfusionist, you may be seeing more of these previous Fontan patients either failing or coming for their transplants. So let's talk a little bit about the failing Fontan. What does that mean? So these patients are going to have a progressive decline in exercise tolerance. They're going to have heart failure. They're going to develop arrhythmias and have some thromboembolic complications. So why does this happen? What's leading to this failure of their content circulation? So some of the things that are going to contribute to this, they're going to have an increase in systemic afterload. And a big one is this mismatch between contractility and afterload. So due to changes in their systemic circulation and limitations in their ventricular performance, they're gonna have this mismatch between contractility and afterload. Um, the, especially if they're a right ventricular, a right ventricle patient, so if they were a hypoplastic left and their right ventricle is now a systemic, the right ventricle has some differences in its morphology from the left ventricle that don't allow it to be you know, as efficient as a pumping um, systemic pumping and ventricle. They're going to have an increase in pulmonary vascular resistance. So lack of pulsatile flow and the ventilation, perfusion, mismatch in the lungs, also subclinical thromboembolisms. embolisms, those things can all uh, those things can all contribute to a rising pulmonary vascular resistance. So remember, with the Fontan, we have passive blood flow to our lungs. So rising pulmonary vascular resistance is going to be really detrimental in getting blood flow to the lungs. And if we don't get enough blood flow to the lungs, we're not going to get enough blood coming back to the heart. So if we don't have enough blood coming back to the heart, now we don't have enough volume to pump out. So that's this rising PVR is very bad in Fontan patients. The systemic ventricular function is determined by the preload limitations. That's kind of what I was just saying. If we don't get enough blood to the lungs and we don't get enough blood from the lungs to the heart, we're not going to have enough volume. Um, And the preload-afterload mismatch. So, again, not enough preload um, is going to be a big factor in their cardiac output um, versus that normal Contractility response in a normal heart, which kind of helps determine um, cardiac index, they really are struggling with a lack of preload. They're also going to have a chronic elevation of systemic venous pressure um, and arrhythmias and liver and GI function. So, all of these things are going to contribute to this failing fontana. Another big factor in how well your patient's gonna do with the Fontan is the function of their atrioventricular valve. So if you have AV valve regurgitation, previously that was considered to be a contraindication to Fontan palliation. So remember, when you have a single ventricle heart, that single ventricle has to provide cardiac output to the whole body and really to the lungs as well. So if there is some regurg in that valve, that ventricle is gonna have a really hard time providing enough output to the body and to the lungs. So AV-valve recurse with Montana is really kind of the bane of your existence. Um, It's hard to generate enough flow if you've got that recurse. So that's why, like I said previously, that was considered to be a hard contraindication. Um, So even with more advanced techniques, there's there's still suboptimal results for AV-valve repair and replacement. the short-term mortality uh, varies between nine and seventy-three percent, with poor long-term survival if you have AV valve research. Um, other contributing factors are chronic volume overload and structural abnormalities. So that AV valve and patients with AV valve failure are twice as likely to develop Fontan failure. The other question is, the timing of the intervention, when should we fix or replace that AV valve? Should it be done at the first surgery? Should it be done later on? Um, and there's a, a reference out of Brazil from 2019 that showed that interventions on the valve during that initial palliation were much more difficult to manage um, and were an independent risk factor for mortality before discharge. So really the repair at the time of the plan or fontan is more preferable, and that's usually what we we'll see. Another issue, which is great to be aware of if, if you're managing a Fontan patient, is that a lot of these patients have coagulation anomalies. So, yeah, abnormalities in coagulation are very common among single ventricle patients. Up to 62% of single ventricle patients have some coagulation, um, coagulopathy, I should say. Um, thrombotic and thromboembolic events are between 7 and 33%. So the causes for this appear to be acquired, not hereditary Um, and some of these things are altered hemodynamic factors. So we've got some, there could be areas of stasis, there's non-pulsatile circulation, atrial arrhythmias, fogous flow, all of these things um, can contribute to vaguillopathies. There's abnormal surfaces, you might have um, prosthetic material and surgical scars. And chronic cyanosis and polycythemia also can induce a prothrombotic state. So, the
1: abnormalities
5: that can be seen include alterations in levels of protein C, protein S, antithrombin, and factors 2, 5, 7, 8, and 10. There can also be increased platelet reactivity. So, again, if you're seeing one of these patients, keep in mind that they might not behave the way that you think they would um, when it comes to your anticoagulation, and your ACTs. Another complicating factor I'm just going to briefly talk about is protein losing enteropathy. Um, and this is due to congestion gastrointestinal tract, which leads to dysfunction of the intestinal barrier. So basically, that congestion just causes the barrier to not function the way it should, and you get a loss of solutes and serum proteins across your intestinal barrier. All right so one other technique that I wanted to talk about is this special technique which you might hear uh, one and a half ventricular repair. So what does that mean? What's a one and a half ventricular repair? So this is kind of a compromise between a single ventricle and a biventricular repair and right now it's mostly considered for patients with a moderately hypoplastic left ventricle. So patients that have hypoplastic left heart or shown syndrome or double outlet right ventricle where the right ventricle is just moderately hypoplastic. They have to have a preserved right ventricular function. Um, and it it would be probably a failing fontan patient who would be a candidate for this repair. Um, or a complex anatomy where the biventricular repair is infusible or just would be too complicated to manage. So this repair involves taking down the fontan, leaving the Glen circulation and then doing a hemi mustard to back hold the IVC to the left atrium, closing the other intracardiac shunts, and then doing the left ventricle to PA shunt. So this seems like a lot, but basically what we're doing is we're leaving the gland circulation so that we've got some passive blood flow still coming to the lungs, but we're also making that moderately hypoplastic left ventricle be a pumping ventricle to the lungs. So we've left the right ventricle as a systemic ventricle, and now we've got so one-and-a-half repair because we've got the left ventricle pumping some of the return from the body to the lungs, but also we still have some passive flow to the lungs with that glen circulation. Um, This could potentially be used on more patients in the future. It's not really being used that much right now, Um, but what really needs to be determined is that lower limit of how hypoplastic the left ventricle can be to still function this capacity and what volume it needs to be able to manage. So this could be a future um, thing that we might see even Mm -hmm. in our our older or adult Fontan patients. Of course, heart transplantation is an option for some patients. Um, Fontan patients who've had heart failure, intractable arrhythmias, protein-using enteropathy, or plastic bronchitis, all these patients might be um, going down the heart transplant route. The prognosis with transplantation is better for patients that have cardiomyopathy than patients that have congenital heart disease. And it's better for other forms of congenital heart disease than Fontan failure. So we kind of we're starting off at a kind of a a deficit here if we're a Fontan needing a heart transplant, already our outcomes are lower than other heart transplant patients. Of course, there there is always the consideration some patients could go straight to transplant without going through the Fontan um, pathway. So what kind of patients might we put straight to transplant? Those include hypoplasts with an intact atrial septum, patients with um, tricuspid regurge or AV valve regurge premature infants, patients with coronary artery anomalies, um, and the specific MSAA variant of hypoplastic left heart, which is at a high risk for coronary fistulas. So all of those patients have some factors that make them really poor Fontan candidates, so they might go straight for heart transplant. Now, why would we not put everyone for a heart transplant versus doing a complex biventricular repair or Fontan Obviously, the reason is because then a lot of people will be sitting on the list and um, at risk for dying while waiting for transplant. So right now, up to 25% of pediatric patients die while waiting for heart, so we can't put everyone on the transplant list right off the bat. All right, and last, I'm going to talk about some future treatments. Where are we headed on this single ventricle um, physiology? So, first, want to talk about this really interesting um, treatment that came out of Japan, this study. So, in this study, what they did, um, the study is from 2013 to 2016 in Japan. What they did was, at the time of the initial surgery, so that Norwood surgery, they harvested some autologous tissue and they did a lot of complex um, genetic uh, science and they expanded it for to get these cardiosphere-derived cardiocytes or CDCs. And they use those for cell therapy um, that they gave approximately a month after the surgery, and they injected it um, into the coronaries. And so basically it's just injecting these cardiac progenitor cells, kind of like stem cells, into the coronaries um, to help try to help improve the ventricular function. So, they did show improvement in ventricular function, especially in patients who had reduced ejection fraction. So those patients that their their biggest issue was their um, cardiac output and ejection fraction, this therapy did help. So the long-term outcomes of this therapy are still unknown. It's relatively a new um, technique, Um, but it could be a new frontier for single ventricle um, management or even for biventricular patients that have depressed ventricular function. And then the other um, kind of really interesting study that I found is this group that did this analysis. Now, this was just a, it was a, a lab study. It wasn't on uh, patients, but they did an in vitro analysis of using a mag or a centromag for right-sided failing content support. So, this was really interesting a new way to use Essential Mag and Peti Mag. So, real quick, before I tell you exactly what they did, let's go to the next slide and just talk again a little bit more about the fontan failure. So, we talked about what contributes to fontan failure, but really we have to think about it in kind of two different big categories. So, you can have your fontan failure mostly due to com- compromised ventricular function. So, if you're right ventricle or whichever ventricle is in the systemic position is failing um, you could have a typical ventricular assist device could be used. If your big issue is poor ventricular filling, so like what I talked about, we have that reliance on the preload. If you're not getting enough preload, then a, a traditional ventricular assist device really isn't going to help you because your function might be okay but you're not getting enough volume. So we have to find a way to get you more volume. So if you have poor ventricular filling, you have a high PVR, low flow across that Fontan circulation, then you might be a candidate for this theoretical Fontan assist device. So that's using your central mag or PMAG in the systemic venous position and trying to increase flow across that Fontan circulation. So the goal is to decrease your IVC pressure and increase cardiac output. So this diagram um, Looks a little bit complicated, but this shows their their lab setup. And basically, they had on the left there. You can see the piston pump that was representing their systemic single ventricle. Um, and then they've got um, they've got these kind of buckets set up as the different um, places. They've got the atrium, the IVC, the SVC, and then they've got different things representing the valves um, to show the the flow basically, so you can see that this is set up to be the flow of a single ventricle heart, all coming from one ventricle, um, and then in the kind of the center there, you can see that's the spot where they put the central mag or the PD mag, and what they did was they put it um, they put it so that it could pull flow from the IVC and SVC and put that flow into the lungs. So this would hopefully help with eventually would preload because if you get more blood flow into the lungs, then you can have more blood flow going back to the heart to be a cardiac output. So they used an in vitro model and then they also used computer models so that they could do five different patients across a range of sizes and anatomies using the Central Mag and the PD Mag. So did it work? They did find that the, with the PD Mag, they only had limited success there's a lot of recirculation in the fontan circulation um, that caused SVC pressures. The central mile was more successful in reducing the SVC and IVC pressure and increasing cardiac output. So it's possible in the future that they could create an application to support a failing fontan if you had preserved ventricular function, just helping get that preload into the heart. Um, this would avoid the need to tape down or modify the fontan circulation. Um, and it would probably not be feasible for patients that have really high PVR that can't be managed medically because it, you wouldn't be able to get enough um, flow into the lungs. But again, another future application that would be a potential that we might see, um, another way of using VADS to help our patients. And the, the reference papers that
2: I that I used for the presentation, and that's all I have. Wow. 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 That is that is very impressive, Katie. Comprehensive, um, for sure. Yeah, and frightening for me.
3: <laughs> yes. Okay, so... I, it shows uh, me how much I don't remember.
2: Oh, it shows me how much I don't... Yeah, how much I don't know.
3: Well... Period. You I'm know, sure I mean, we were told some of this.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, which brings up... Um, do you have any questions? Because I've got a whole... I have Once a cornucopia of questions. Go ahead. So when you talk about the um, us seeing these adult congenitals, I know that <clears throat> some of the big medical center uh, institutions have hired um, some very gifted, very capable surgeons for this very specific purpose, and that is managing the adult congenital, people that have survived mm-hmm. through these procedures and now they are adults needing other things done. Um, are we really going to ever see that, you think, out in the non-medical center community? Yeah. That's uh, what I, I was I guess wondering. possibly as an emergency. And if we did, um, of course, if it was an emergency and couldn't be transferred, which seems like the more appropriate thing to do um what kind of resources do we have who would we call because clearly you know there's going to potentially be drainage issues if it's a valve um that needs to be worked on a lot of questions about where to cannulate how to cannulate what to expect in terms of you know the field being flooded where they can't operate would be one of my primary concerns emptying the hard enough and being able to actually see to do whatever repair you had to do so what what do you say to that?
5: Well, I think that you're you're probably right. You probably won't see. I wouldn't imagine you would see a lot of these patients at a non-academic center. Um, I think most of them are probably preferentially going to go to those bigger centers that have um, either a pediatric surgeon or an adult surgeon who's doing adult congen- or congenital surgeries. Um, I think that your surgeon probably be reaching out to other, other surgeons at an academic center for, for advice and um, certainly you know you could reach out to your local academic center, um, to the perfusionist there and hear what they had to say also, but I think you're right, it probably would be, I think it would be more of just managing the patient until they went to a bigger center.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: mm-hmm. You know, if you had to do a, for example, if you had to do some mechanical circulatory support for them, which would be the best way to do that, we would want to know. Um, so I would suggest that people perhaps watching the show, and it's actually, it's actually going to encourage me. To find some, of course, I do know a few people, right? We know a few people here at Houston. Well, we're lucky would to be wa- in a large city. So, right. of
3: course, we've crossed paths with some, right. some people who are special to, you know, specialized in this field.
2: Sure, but if somebody's traveling through, let's say, in a more remote area mm-hmm. and ends up at a hospital that actually does heart surgery and they're failing, you're going to want to be able to find somebody pretty quickly to help yeah, you get through you that. You might
3: want to put them in your uh, reference book.
2: Absolutely. And actually call them and... And develop at least some type of connection, um, so that you actually know somebody in a bigger institution. You know, because I think that can happen. Um, I would like to get. You, you want to go with one of your questions?
3: No, because mine's sort of off topic. But she's an expert, so I'm going to ask her something about that.
2: Okay. Um, I have a question about organ availability, because obviously, you know, you have to operate on these patients, and the, the, all of these very exotic operations mm-hmm. to create these baffles and shunts is to buy time for either it's a sustainable procedure where the patient can grow with it, and that they may not need it something else, but a lot of this sounds like it's for preparation and survival until heart transplantation. Okay, so
3: mine. Feeds off of that, so.
2: Yeah, so go ahead.
3: Well, no, so it's, it's my
2: curiosity is what about organ availability and for then these kids?
3: I'll add on, so you can just kind of continue on. So, uh, what I wanted to know is, once you, um, once your patients get their heart transplant, whether it be initially because that's what was best for them, or you know, as a, um, it's a step later after a few procedures, how how long do those hearts typically last for them i know some of it has to do with how much growing they still have to do but i I kind of remember way back when when i was learning about this that it's it's often not life sustaining for very long it's a certain number of years and then they need another heart they outgrow
2: their graft Mm -hmm. or outgrow it because the the transplanted heart won't grow with you or will it if it's denervated will it Will it grow with you?
3: Yeah, maybe you could just talk a little bit on some of these things because I find this really fascinating.
5: So I definitely, I won't say that I'm an expert in all things heart transplantation, but I have heard that if you transplant patients, a smaller patient, actually the heart can last longer than you would think. So so some of our patients here that have gotten transplants when they're only, you know two to five years old actually i think that the transplant docs expect that it could last them into their 20s oh um, wow so, but of course not not always but it could it could last it has the potential I think, yeah i think that like any transplant you know you're going to have you have a certain time limit on that part whether it's 10 or 20 years and then you might be looking for another transplant or some other assist device Um, With your single ventricle patients, it's kind of a complicated decision because you have to think about what's been going on in their body the whole time that they've had this single ventricle circulation. So they might have had, they've probably had, if they're failing Fontan, they probably had a lot of congestion in their liver. They could have had congestion in their upper body, in their brain. So somebody who's much smarter than me has to make the decision on whether this patient is really going to do well even with a new heart. Is mm-hmm. the rest of their body and the rest of their organ systems um, going to be able to handle that? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a factor that's going to play into whether these patients are going to eventually go down the transplant route, or are they going to stay as the single ventricle or a Fontan circulation for their whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think mm-hmm. I think,
3: I hope that answers your question. Yeah. No,
2: it's very good. Very good.
3: It does what, and if I can do a follow up real quick, mm-hmm, please. Since you were talking about you know the Fontan, possibly being the solution for these single ventricle patients to last them their whole life, and I know there's a whole lot of things that come into play for this, but typically speaking, what would be considered their life expectancy? Do they? How long do they live with these types of things, if it all goes well and there's no major complications?
5: So I think that that is hard to say. I think that as techniques progress, you'll see, you know, a progression in life expectancy for these patients. Um, So like I said, the the techniques and the management have really changed a lot from the late 60s to now. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that there are patients that are living into their 20s, 30s, 40s. Wow.
1: Um,
5: I don't know if there's patients living a lot past that, Mm -hmm. but there could be. Future again yeah. we, within management, um, it's really hard to predict. I've heard one of our, our surgeons here say that it's really hard to predict who's Fontan is going to fail and not. There's not yeah. a lot of good, you know, data. So unfortunately, you know, they do they do the best they can, and it's not always predictable who's going to do really well with it. And who it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. So organ, so that's very
3: mm-hmm. encouraging.
2: Yes, absolutely. So organ availability. And I'm going to ask a very controversial question, um, but I think it's germane and relevant, and uh, and um, should be discussed. Do you guys have any thoughts on xenotransplantation, much in the way Dr. Bailey did the baboon heart in Baby Fay, um, and uh, in in order to supplement the organ availability that. I, I would imagine is there is a shortage of organs, because if there wasn't a shortage of organs, you would have a lot of more transplants than perhaps these exotic procedures that you're doing with all of these uh, uh, fontans and, and, and shunts and baffles, etc.
5: I would think that the advancement of ventricular assist devices would be more what's going to help fill that gap, probably, than some of the transplantation. Um, mm-hmm years There's constant evolution of VADs and VADs being available for the pediatric population, which is a whole kind of separate issue, right, because a lot of the VADs are made for bigger patients. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would see that in the future hopefully helping kind of fill that gap.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, I mean, I think that xenotransplantation is a very controversial topic for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure. I, I had another question, which again is, and, and I could understand about the, the, the VADs or total artificial heart and so mm-hmm. forth, where that'd be nice if you could just click, plug and play, and that's all there was to it. But, you know, they have all of their limitations as well. You know, VAD thrombosis is such a huge problem. And then, of course, sizing and everything else is a big concern too. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is, a, this is a bit on the controversial side the capability of these children that we do and we do a lot of them are these normal you know normally mentating children are they do they end up as there a disproportionate number that are special needs are or are they otherwise basically normal children just with really bad cardiac uh anatomy and, and physiology because of a congenital defect. Is it isolated in other words or does it really is it almost a whole picture?
5: I think there's a spectrum. I think that some patients, you know, their congenital abnormality is that's their their main problem and they might have a chance to have a fairly normal life. I think that you would find that there's adults out there that had congenital heart surgery and you don't even know. Um some of them have a lot of other issues right which might be developmental but they also might just be other you know anatomical things that they have going on some of them have you know there's a huge variety of really not well-known genetic disorders that these patients have that affect like lots of other areas of their body so some of them you know they're not going to have a quote-unquote normal life some of them i think have a great chance to have a pretty normal life, and I think that operating on them, you know, we have to also look at doing all of these surgeries as helping not just the patients that we're helping, but helping future patients as mm-hmm. well, right? Understanding. Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: Yes,
3: great. So.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Is there a is there though a a percentage? In other words, what percentage of children that present with significant Significant enough cardiac malformations also have developmental uh, uh, abnormalities. How, what, what is the ratio of
5: that? I don't know what that number is. I'm sure there is data out there, but I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Hmm. I mean, it's a tough question, but you know I'm curious as to, as to that, that part of it.
5: Hmm.
2: You know
3: Yeah, I don't know. But it does seem like anytime something is genetic, it's it's more rare that it's an isolated thing mm-hmm. versus a thing that affects many things. But yeah, just absolutely. because it affects many things, again, doesn't mean that, you know, they, an altered life doesn't mean a... A, 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 a meaningless
2: life. Correct. I, I totally agree with you. Right. I mean, I think that that shows the, I mean, at the end of the day, the, the real message to all of this is the level of our compassion as a society, Mm -hmm. you know, but I do think also um, it is important for us to take into consideration quality of life before we endeavor in some of these things. And we deal with that every day in our patient population who may be young, still have a whole life in front of them. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, how do you, how do you measure quality of life? For some
3: person, it may be this thing, and for someone else, it's something else. Correct.
2: It is very, very, very individualized. And then you have the families. You have the parents that you're taking into consideration and uh, other loved ones. I mean, it's a very complex issue. But I think the bottom line is we are such a compassionate society, and uh, we value human life of, of any type, and we'll do everything we possibly can to preserve it and extend it as best we can.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, but, of course, if you're just brain dead and there is no quality of life, I think you have to make those very tough decisions and mm-hmm. say this is enough. We just it's, it's torturing. This is torture. We have to stop. But that's a very emotional decision. Picking, selecting patients, who gets and who doesn't get, is not something for the faint of heart. That is a very, very hard thing to have to do. And uh, we, all, but we all get put in that position. I mean, that is what we do. So with that said, any other questions?
3: No, that's really it.
2: Katie, you are clearly the smartest person in the room. Mm. And uh, I don't think you realize who you, you can shake your head and smile. I appreciate that, but it's true. And we value so much and appreciate so much your willingness to do this and uh, be a part of this program. It's You've really added a new dimension to it. So we really appreciate have. you a great deal. Oh wait, once they get put on CMAG circuit, as you illustrated, what is the next step for the patient? Where is it leading to? Okay, so John had a question, is once you do that Centromag circuit that you showed, what is the next step for the patient? What is your long, What what is the next step? So that
5: one, remember that was, First of all, that was a lab study, right? That hasn't actually been done on a patient, but I imagine that if it was done on the patient, it would be waiting for a transplant.
3: Yeah, so mm-hmm. it might mm-hmm. be prolonging their Fontan procedure right. so that it doesn't fail so that they can, you know, get mm-hmm. to a transplant or, you know, mm-hmm. wait a number of years to get to a transplant. Is yeah. kind of how I took it.
2: Well, the other thing that I recognized out of it, at least, is in a lab, if you did, were to do that, um, you could really sort of learn how, if the ventricle is beating with this particular strength, we'll just say, that contractility is X, whatever X is, and we're flowing through this thing, what I've understood from it is I can now predict what volume is going to do for increasing flow here or there, how can we maybe adjust the size of these various different communications that we've developed uh, through your Fontan or whatever. If I make it smaller, if I make it larger, if I add a second one, will it help? Will it hurt? That's what I got out of it. Is that what you were doing with it?
5: Well, I think that um, they were specifically trying to see if a VAD in a different, you know, using a different way in a different position could help increase the preload to the heart. Mm -hmm. But I think what you're saying is also true is that Like, lots of medical research is done using computer modeling to decide, you know, the shapes of conduits and um, the sizes of things. And even, you know, some centers have 3D modeling also where they can print, you know, a heart head of surgery and kind of look at it, you know, in their hands and see what's going to fit and what they're going to do. So I think all of these things are, you know, being used some now and they're going to be utilized a lot more in the but I think that if if a patient was put on a centromag in the way that they're describing, it would be waiting, you know, they'd be, you know, listed as one A on the transplant was waiting for a transplant. Exactly. You obviously
3: wouldn't be able to go home on a centromag. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Very good. Okay.
3: Well, thank you.
2: Katie, thank you again very much. And uh, we're looking forward to a lot more of your programs. We I, I enjoy them tremendously, and I know our audience does too.
1: Great. Oh thank you.
2: Oh, we need a, uh, and we need, Magic just told me, we need a professional photo of you and a short bio because we don't have that on our website yet, and we really do need to have that uh, so that we, of course, then I can actually introduce you every once in a while and not have to rely on Matt, but it's been a pleasure, and thank you so very much. Thank you. Bye-bye.
3: Bye.